You're listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. This week's message is preached by Pastor Scott McGrady. You take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. It's uh, convenient to come to this passage here the Sunday after Thanksgiving. Um, I didn't plan it that way. I, I, don't, I don't think through where things land very often. I just kind of go through my outline that I, I've made my sermon series on. Um, but it, it's convenient we land here uh, thinking about uh, thanksgiving uh, to the Lord. So again, First Timothy chapter 4, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 5 here this morning. And there are many uh, passages in the Bible that tell us about the goodness of God. Actually, the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation manifests and demonstrate, tell us of, show us, and really in many ways could be said is really all about the goodness of God. As we see revealed to us in his word, his character, his will, his work, nonetheless his work of creation, and we see his goodness also in the gospel. We see his goodness as his word reveals him as a holy God, uh, that he is a God of righteousness, justice, wrath, mercy, and grace. Uh, when Moses asked to see God's glory, uh, we read there in Exodus of God's proclamation of himself. And so we see there in Exodus chapter uh, 34, verses 6 through 7, we read there, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and children's children to the third and fourth generation. And because he is a good God, then too, everything he has made is good. As a matter of fact, we read in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, that after God had finished creation, that he looked at his creation and saw that it was very good, because he is very good. And because he is good, then also, too, everything he gives us is good. In James chapter 1, verse 17, we read this. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variant or shadow due to change. Everything he does is good. Everything he has created is good. Every gift he has given is good. And he works good in all things that he brings into our lives for his good purposes, for his glory. Right? That's Romans 8, 28 and 29. Right? And so to give thanks to God for all he is and all he has done and will do and all that we have is therefore to recognize that God ha what God has done and what God has given is good because he is good. And so then to fail to give him the thanks that he deserves is a fail to recognize his goodness. And that's why, too, I think it's, it is a heinous crime that we would fail to give him the thanks and the praise and the glory that he alone deserves. And so as we think about these things, and having just come off Thanksgiving, I think this shows to us that Thanksgiving is really a Christian holiday. Uh, though unbelievers celebrate Thanksgiving as well, 
But as we'll talk about going through this text, uh, really it's only true believers that can give God the thanks that he alone deserves, that can truly recognize his goodness. That we recognize, too, that all we have really comes to us through Jesus Christ. So that we can give him the praise and that we can uh, join in as his people are called to give him thanks in Psalm 105, verse 1, where we read, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people. And that's exactly what we should endeavor to do. Last week, we wrapped up the second section of this letter of Paul's to Timothy as we went over chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. And we talked about that as a, a transition uh, from uh, that second section into the rest of the letter. And there we saw Paul write and talk about why he was writing this letter. That even though he had planned to come to Timothy quickly, uh, in case he was held up for some reason, he wrote to Timothy so that Timothy would know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. And we discussed that uh, the behavior called for, the, the conduct according to certain customs and principles, that that covers everything Paul talks about in this letter. So that in all we do, in our, our public gathering for worship, in the life of the church, that it should all be as God has prescribed in his word. And we see, again, this necessary conduct is the behavior in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. And so we discussed how what we do is connected to both who we are and who we belong to. That we are a family, and we are an assembly of those whom God has called out from this world. We are the household, the family that belongs to God. We are the assembly of the living God, the true God. And as Paul further defined what the church is as a pillar and foundation of the truth, uh, with that we discuss the purpose of the church. Uh, the purpose in upholding and defending the truth in the world. And that truth, specifically, as Paul refers to, is that common confession that we see there in chapter 3, verse 16, uh, that which Paul calls the mystery of godliness, which is the statement that, that could possibly have been a, an ancient confession of the early church. And it was a confession, it was truth, about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and foundation of the truth, it matters then. It matters what we do as we hold up this truth to the world. It matters how we worship and approach God. It matters how we live in the life of the church. And so that, they're the things we've, we've gone over up to this point here in this passage. And so let's then turn to... Uh, the verses we're going to look at this morning and, and read them together. Again, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. 
For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Now, Paul starts off this section returning to the idea of the false teachers and the false teaching that uh, became prominent there in the church in Ephesus. And so he's talking about what is in contrast to that commonly held confession about Christ, uh, that which, instead of being held to, uh, there were those who professed to believe in it then walked away from that faith, from that confession, and so were apostates. And he points out that the Holy Spirit expressly says, or he could say uh, clearly says, or explicitly says, that this would happen. And as he says that the Spirit clearly communicates this, as we talk about the Spirit communicating, that, that, that's how Scripture is. It's the clear communication of the Spirit. And so we can look at Scripture and know what it means. And understand what it says and knows that what it says is what it means. There are times, and, and we've discussed this, that uh, we come across something that may not be as clear. And we can say, well, it could be saying this or it could be saying that. And, and we need to wrestle with those passages and work through them. And, and we need to wrestle with each other uh, where we may fall in different places uh, on those things that, that may be less clear. And, and sharpen one another as we work through those things together. But for the most part, the scriptures are clear. And even in those times where you know, there may be a verse or something that, that's not as clear, still the, the overarching point of that passage is clear. And so even as we work through those things, we, we need to work together and, and be generous and gracious with one another as we work through those things that are, are less clear. But again, scripture overall is clear. Uh, the things that the Holy Spirit has revealed through God's chosen instruments who, who wrote down his word, he speaks clearly. Uh, this is what we call the perspicuity of Scripture. It's the clarity of Scripture. And when it comes to the clearer things versus the less clear things, you know, I often refer to the, the quotes from John Owen or, or Alistair Begg. Uh, John Owen said, what God intended to be clear, he made clear. And where Alistair Begg says that the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. Uh, and, that, and that's all right and true. And so what God's Spirit communicates, contrary to popular opinion, he communicates clearly. And so we can understand his word. And I think it's important to, to always take any opportunity to talk about that because, again, that, that's not the popular notion. The popular notion is that well, we really can't understand, or that's just your interpretation, all those kind of things. But that, that's just not the case. The Spirit speaks clearly through the Word of God. And what the Scriptures plainly say is what they mean. And so we don't need to do all kinds of exegetical aerobics and interpretation exercises to figure them out or, or to make them say what we want them to say. We don't need to read into Scripture what they do not say, uh, but take the Scriptures for what they do say. And hold to what they say. And now, with that said, we, we see here again, the Spirit does speak clearly. And Paul saying here in verse 1 that the Spirit has communicated and communicated clearly, 
he says this, that, that there are those in latter times who will depart from the faith. That's what the, the Spirit had communicated. And as he says again, the Spirit has explicitly said this, or says this, he doesn't really say how or when the Spirit has said this. And really, that's not the point either. The point just is that the Spirit clearly communicates. And this is what he has clearly communicated. And so he doesn't talk about whether uh, the Spirit is saying this through a direct revelation to Paul. That could be the case. And so then Paul is writing this inspired letter, which it is, this inspired letter uh, of Scripture as he's writing to Timothy. That could be what Paul's referring to, or uh, he could mean the, uh, the things that just became widely known throughout the church as communicated through the New Testament prophets. Or even still, he could be saying that the Spirit speaks through the things that were written in the Old Testament, the warnings and all the other things expressed about apostasy there. And we see those things in Deuteronomy 28, Ezekiel 20, uh, Psalm 78, and on we can go with, with the examples of talking about apostasy in the Old Testament. All that's possible, and how the Spirit could have been speaking at that time. But again, Paul doesn't specifically say. But as he says that the Spirit clearly speaks, uh, the word for speak or the saying, uh, it's in the present tense. And so Paul is saying the Spirit is speaking. He's continuing to communicate this truth and to communicate it clearly. And so again, Paul could be recognizing and saying that, that he himself in that moment is writing the inspired word of God. Uh, or he could also be referring to, again, as you read the Old Testament, the Spirit speaks. Or uh, even the things that were written down that are now our New Testament. Because again, all over our New Testament, you have warnings of apostasy. You, we saw it when we were in Second Th Thessalonians and in Second Peter. You see it in Jude and in John's epistles. You see it in Jesus' teachings as recorded in the Gospels. It's all over. There will be those who make a profession of faith and then walk away. And Peter's, or Paul says that the Spirit says this, it will happen in later or last times. Say the last times is synonymous with the, the last days. And we talked about that recently. And so that said that that refers to the time period between the first and second coming of Christ. That, that refers to the time period of uh, the church age. Uh, they're the last days. And so we've been in the last days throughout church history. And so when we ourselves then hear about someone who either is, is widely known or someone we personally know who had made a profession of faith and now walks away, uh, that can be heartbreaking, and, and it is, and it can even be frustrating, especially if that's someone that we ourselves have poured ourselves into, uh, to share the gospel with and disciple, and now they, they've walked away from the faith. That, that's heartbreaking and so frustrating. But one thing it should not be is surprising. Because again, the Spirit says this is going to happen. Now then, too, as we talk about this, and so just for clarity's sake, um, Many people ask, well, what is that that's happening when someone walks away from the faith? Uh, are they, have they lost their salvation, or were they never really saved to begin with? And, and honestly, on that, I do, again, think the Spirit clearly speaks in His Word. Uh, 
The Spirit tells us that it's God who saves, and if God saves, God does not change his mind. He's not like, oh, well, never mind. But we do see in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, what the Spirit clearly says. There the apostle wrote, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. The evidence that you have true saving faith is that you have a persevering faith. And so, I would argue the scriptures are clear, the person was never truly saved to begin with. Uh, They may have given lip service to trusting in Christ, they may have had an emotional response to the gospel, but they never truly or fully put their faith in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. They were never truly depending upon him and trusting in him as Lord. And so there are those who who walk away. Now, we see here that Paul gives uh, the means by which people walk away from the faith. And he says it's by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Uh, They are, are led astray as they give themselves, devote themselves to false teaching, to heresy. And all heresy, all false doctrine comes from deceitful spirits. It's all the teaching of demons. Uh, Paul talks about this elsewhere. We saw uh, Peter make similar references, and false teaching is demonic. Every religion that is not the one true religion of the world, the one true religion being that which says that Jesus is Lord, and he is the only way of salvation. The one true religion that says that you cannot save yourself. But salvation is all of God from beginning to end, and every aspect of salvation is all of God, that he gets all the credit, he gets all the glory. Any teaching, any religion that is contrary to those sound biblical truths of true Christianity is from deceitful spirits. It's the teaching of demons. Going back all through history, uh, going back to uh, the false religions of Molech and Baal and Astra, those idol religions that plagued ancient Israel. Or to the cults of Diana, which we referenced last week as being in Ephesus. Or or the early Gnostic ideas that were creeping into the early church. Or or Roman Catholicism or atheism and atheistic science, Islam, New Ageism, and and all the the modern religions. Even including those who call themselves Christian faiths, call themselves evangelical, but reject that Jesus is the only way to be saved. Those who call themselves Christian, but decree that all people are basically good. And that as long as our good outweighs our bad, we can get ourselves to God. That each one can choose their own path. All of these things are demonic. True Christianity stands on the truth of God's word. Instead of those faiths that reject God's word or explain away the things they don't like, instead of submitting to God's word, they want to bend God to their will and so create a God in their own image. Instead of submitting themselves to God's will and recognizing that he created them, he has the authority over them. They are his creation that he made in his own image. And 
And so these are the religions of the world. They are all demonic. And people come under the influence of deceitful spirits as they, they desire their own sin and love their own sin instead of loving the Lord. And so again, when we see such apostate, apostasy, uh, it should not surprise us. Right here, we see it in God's word that the Spirit says this is going to happen. And all we can do, all we can do is hold up the truth to the world. All we can do is proclaim the person and work of Jesus Christ and call the world around us to repent of their sin and to love Christ Jesus as Lord. All we can do is warn of the wrath to come and leave the rest to God. That he will save. As we pray to him, that, that people will trust in him. And we seek to please him as we are his church. We are the church of the true, the living God. And so again, we see these influences that came into the church there in Ephesus. And as we go through the text here, we see part of that influence, at least, was a teaching on a, an asceticism, a, a keeping yourself away from, from certain pleasures in order to, to make yourself holier, to, to get yourself to, to higher spiritual uh, heights, um, and uh, to progress yourself, or even to save yourself, to make yourself right before God. And again, as these teachings went out through the church there in Ephesus, people were led astray with this demonic teaching that came through human mouthpieces, came through false teachers who were insincere. They were hypocrites. Uh, they didn't really believe what they were propagating. They were liars. And we see that with false teachers today. They may not be teaching the same kind of asceticism and different things that were being taught there in Ephesus, but with all the false teaching going on today, there are many examples that, they, that it's clear they don't really believe what they are saying. You have the prosperity and health and wealth preachers uh, that use parlor tricks to, to make people think that they're performing miracles and healings. You have Benny Hinn, who uh, has these healing crusades, and it's been well documented of, of people with, with, that are not, don't have real ailments that are planted in the crowd to come forward and be healed. All the while, there are those that in their despair because of their ailments and, and in, in being so desperate, they come to be healed themselves, but they have real ailments. So they're, they're put in the back and they're, they're barred from ever coming forward. Uh, there's testimony after testimony of such things. He doesn't really believe what he's saying. And so just like in our day, in the day of Paul and Timothy, there were these false teachers who were liars, who, as, as Paul says here, their consciences were seared. Now burn your conscience enough. Ignore it when it's telling you you were doing wrong. And eventually, it's going to stop working. It's going to be calloused. It's going to be seared. You're, you're not going to feel that conviction anymore. And you'll become such an immoral person that you exploit people and you exploit their pain and their naivety for your own personal gain. Now, later we're going to read, Paul says that the false teachers were motivated by financial gain. Uh, we saw in Paul's or Peter's letters that the false teachers were motivated by greed and their perversion. 
And we've already seen in this letter that what Paul called Timothy to was in contrast to the false teachers. As we saw in chapter 1, verse 19, that Timothy was to wage the good warfare, fighting for the gospel by holding faith and a good conscience, which there, Paul said that they were the very things that the false teachers rejected. They rejected the faith, and they rejected a good conscience. We see here in verse 3, what the, the false teaching consisted of was, like I said, an asceticism, a keeping away from certain pleasurable things. And specifically, the things that they were being told to stay away from was marriage and eating certain foods. And by abstaining from marriage, again, somehow you, you reach new spiritual heights. Uh, uh, maybe that's an idea of sanctifying yourself. That the better life was the single life as opposed to being married. And then, too, there was attached some virtue in not eating certain foods. Again, probably carrying this idea of, of, of sanctifying yourself and, and making yourself right before God, as if salvation was found in, in, in this depraving, depriving yourself of things. Now, Paul already indicated in this letter that there was a perversion of the gospel there in Ephesus. Men trying to make themselves right with God by keeping God's law. But no one will be justified this way. Since through the law comes not righteousness before God, but instead the knowledge of sin. The law points out that we can't keep the law, and we haven't kept the law. We're sinners. That's why Paul said in chapter 1 that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and the profane. Matter of fact, what man tries to do, whether in lowering the standard of God's law to something that they can keep, or, or by adding their traditions to God's law, none of it works. Uh, we see uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is addressing the very idea that, that they had lowered the standard of God's law. And she's saying, no, no, it's, it's much higher. Uh, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, if you even look with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. Uh, you, you've heard it said, do not murder. But I tell you, if you're even unjustly angry, if you say raka to your brother, you're guilty. You talk about making... Uh, promises and you swear by heaven and earth, I, I tell you, just let your no be no and your yes be yes. Uh, be such a person of your word. Uh, Jesus lifted up the standard of God to its intent. Man tried to lower it. And adding one's traditions uh, to, to show piety in their life and what they do. There are those, initially those traditions of, uh, of the elders in the Jewish uh, traditions, they, they were they had good intentions at first. Uh, they still were wrong. But the intention was to put a fence around God's law, that if we, if we kept these traditions, then we wouldn't break God's law. Uh, but again, that, they, they raised up those traditions even above God's law, where Jesus even calls them out that, that you break God's law in order to keep your traditions. And it was those who added their traditions to God's law that got the most scathing comments from Jesus. No one can ever make themselves right. The high standard of God's law just demonstrates we're sinners, that we've broken God's law and we've earned his wrath. There is no work, there is nothing any one of us can do 
to save ourselves and make ourselves right, but only Jesus can save, and only Jesus must save. Salvation is all of him. And so what's the point? What good is there in saying people must refrain from being married and requiring people be uh, practice abstinence from certain foods? What good is there in it? Now, many point out uh, that Paul did exalt the high call and virtue of singlehood because it gave somebody the opportunity to focus their efforts and service on the Lord instead of being divided by the responsibilities of a family. But that's a far cry from forbidding marriage. Instead, we see God-ordained marriage. From the beginning of creation, God created marriage, and marriage is part of God's mandate for humanity to fill and subdue the earth. Jesus exalted marriage in upholding God's intent for marriage as a lifelong commitment inside the boundaries that God has set and the definition of marriage that God has set. You see, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 and 6, 4 through 6, he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. True marriage is good and right and God-honoring. And singlehood is good and right and God-honoring for those whom God has given to be single. Jesus was single. Paul, uh, some argue, and it has merit that since he was a Pharisee, at least at some point he may have been married, but uh, either his wife deserted him or she died, and Paul himself then remained single. But we also see, too, that, that Peter and other apostles were married. When it comes to food, uh, we see that there were certain foods that were forbidden under the Old Testament dietary laws, but that had a purpose for a specific people in a specific place at a specific time. Uh, that, the, that Israel as a nation would be distinct from the rest of the nations. And there was a purpose at that time for it, but then it was all put aside with the coming of Messiah. We read Jesus' words in Mark chapter 7, verses 14 through 15. It says, And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And in just a couple verses from here, he goes on and explains this to the disciples, saying, listen, what you eat, what you put in yourself just passes right through. And so that's not what defiles you, but what comes out of the heart, lying and, and sexual immorality and murder and adultery, that they're the things that defile a man. And, and Mark makes a note there saying that when Jesus said this, he declared all foods clean. We also see in Acts, we'll get there in Sunday school, word willing, we see there that when Peter had his vision of the sheet that came down with all these animals on it that were unclean, it says there, God made them clean. 
and all the, the regulations that were meant to, to separate the Jews from the Gentiles, they were all torn down in Jesus, as Paul explains in Ephesians 2, in order that the two Jews and Gentiles would come together to make a new man, something that wasn't there before, the church. And so all that's set aside. And so these are things that we need to have clarification on, that we don't confuse. Well, isn't there times when we're told to refrain from this? And this helps bring that clarification, I think. Also, too, we should not confuse this either when there are those who, for the sake of prayer and drawing close to God, do fast for a time. We shouldn't confuse these things together, nor should we confuse what Paul says about intimacy in marriage in 1 Corinthians 7. He says that a husband and wife are not to deprave, deprive one another of intimacy. And he says, except, perhaps, by agreement for a limited time. So if the two agree with each other to, to not do this for a limited time, he says that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So any kind of fasting uh, for prayer in, in both of these cases, we should also recognize it's willful. It's willful. It, it, that makes it a far cry from forbidding marriage and forbidding certain foods. And Paul's point points out here that the specific problem with forbidding marriage and requiring absence from foods, the problem with it is that these things were created to be received, or you could say participated in, with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. God gave these things for a reason. Again, that, that we would participate in these things with thanksgiving. And in God's common grace, unbelievers as well as believers can and do enjoy food and marriage. Uh, but these things were specifically given for those who believe, for us to enjoy. That we have Nothing unless it has come to us from God's hand, and we, we recognize that. And so therefore, it's specifically given to believers, to those who believe and know the truth, uh, because we're the ones who then turn around to truly give God thanks. And so we turn around recognizing that all we have is provided by Him. And so when it comes to our marriages, we're, we're grateful to God for our spouse. Uh, we're grateful to God for our food. Right? We recognize it's only by His grace that we have these things. And so, for example, every godly man, knowing the great value and worth that his wife is to him, will turn around and praise God for his wife and give thanks. And it won't just be trite words of, of a quick prayer before I fall asleep to give thanks, because I'm supposed to but it'll be from the heart shown in the fact that this gratitude affects my relationship with my wife. This gratitude reflects how we treat one another, that this godly man who gives praise to God for his wife is again going to turn around and lead his wife and care for his wife and protect his wife. He's going to love her as Christ loved the church because that'll be part of his gratitude towards God and how thankful he truly is to God for her. And so if we think about that, if we truly have this gratitude to our Creator for what He has given us, how is that going to affect how we live? How is that going to affect our relationships? 
And if you're, you're sitting here saying, well, you know, my, my marriage is not very good right now. Uh, but if you, you live in response to what God has given you, giving him thanks, and so you are grateful for your spouse, and so that affects how you treat your spouse and live with your spouse, if you're truly grateful, isn't that gratitude then going to affect your marriage? Uh, or if you're saying, you know, my, my marriage is pretty good right now. Well, great, but we all have room to grow, right? All of our marriages, because we as individuals all have room to grow. Well, let's, we just got to be honest about that. And so how much more will our, our marriages grow and be what they're intended to be if we live out this gratitude because we're truly thankful? And so that our marriages will stay healthy as we give thanks to God. And again, this, this applies to any relationship. How will our gratitude for one another affect our relationship with one another? Or even too, as we bow our head for food before we eat, not with empty words or trite, memorized poems, but with recognizing each meal is given to us by God's grace. That it's God who is sustaining us by all the good things he gives us. And really, too, for those of us who understand the gospel, when we understand what we deserve, eternal wrath, and yet look at what he's given us believers that truly turn around to give thanks to God for all that we have. And God in his common grace gives good things to, to all people. And again, that too was purchased by Christ because God did not immediately bring his wrath because he intended to save a people out of the world. And he intended to do that through Christ in his timing. So like Romans 3.25 says, he had passed over former sins because he was going to show his justice in the present time that he might be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. Uh, the truth of the matter is, each and every one of us have what we have because of Christ. And you and I who believe, we can stand here and say, we have what we have because Christ took what we deserve. And so that we would truly give thanks to God for all that we have. And so that affects that we wouldn't just give thanks at Thanksgiving. Because then how genuine is that? No, but it would be the attitude of our everyday lives in everything we do. It's our mindset. So we would live giving God all the glory for all that he has given us. And so again, God created marriage and created food to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe those who are God's people, who know the truth, as opposed to those who are led astray by lies, and opposed the truth as opposed to the lies that, that people are led astray by. And in verse 4, Paul gives the reason why God created marriage and created food to be received with thanksgiving. He says, for by everything created by, for by, for everything, excuse me, everything created by God is good. The only reason there can be a demand that people would refrain from such things is because there's something inherently wrong with those things. But marriage and food are not inherently wrong. They are from God, and so they are good. God declared all he made as good. Again, we referenced already Genesis 1.31. And he gave food for people. We go back 
to Genesis 1, verse 29. We read, and, and God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And then after the flood, in Genesis 9, verse 3, we read, Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. And so food, it's been given to us. It's good. Uh, and marriage, again, we already pointed out Jesus taught on marriage, uh, referring back to Genesis, that God made marriage. And marriage is good. It's good how God made it. When man tries to recreate what God made, then it's not good. And so man's recreation of marriage in their sin is not good. And that's in any way that they, they go outside the boundaries that God has set and that God has defined. And so any heterosexual or homosexual sin, it's, it's wicked. It's not good. But God created to be received with thanksgiving for everything God created is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Note that. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Uh, the point of what God has made for man to enjoy is ultimately so that man would recognize the one who gave it to them to enjoy. And so that man would turn around and give thanks to God. Therefore, what God made for man is ultimately for God. So whatever is done with gratitude, whatever we receive with gratitude, gratitude towards our Creator for all that He has given us, all His good gifts, they should not be thrown out. They're ultimately for God's glory. You know, it's at this point, too, that many commentators want to jump in and bring some qualifiers uh, to make sure that we, we don't misunderstand some things and think that this makes gluttony okay, <laughs> uh, or, or some other sinful thing that as long as it's received with thanksgiving— but I think it's, it's kind of a, a pointless point to make. Because um, I would argue that true gratitude towards the Lord would cause one not to take even what is good and make something sinful out of it. Because true, grat true gratitude means we want to turn around and honor God with it. And so we keep it within the boundaries that he intended those things for that we would give him thanks that he deserves, which again is the point. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. And then verse 5 tells us why. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Now, when it says it's made holy, it means it's, it's set apart for God's purposes. That's what it means to be holy. Set apart. and It's set apart by God's word and prayer. Well, how, how does... God's word and prayer set marriage and food and, and all of God's gifts apart. Well, I think prayer, that's easy to, to figure out. Um, prayer is the recognition that what we have came from God. Uh, prayer is the recognition that we are dependent on God for everything we have. And prayer is also the expression of our gratitude. And as we think of how something is set apart through God's word, we could think of maybe this is referring to the declaration of all things God has made as good. And that everything God gives us is a good gift from him. 
as we see in his word. Or two, as it refers to the word of God, it could be in reference to the gospel. That again, uh, it's through Christ that we have anything that we have. It's also in Christ that we are free to not be trying to work our way to God. Because we can't, but, but Christ is the one who brings us to God. So we're, we're free from trying to keep certain pleasures that God has given us out of our lives to try and make ourselves better and, and, and try to uh, uh, make up for our sin. No, Christ has done everything for our sin. Christ is the one who brings us to God, so we're free from all such kind of things. And again, it's in the gospel. It's, it's in recognizing what Christ has done that we see that that's why we have all that we have. That Christ took the wrath of God in our place. And so we see those gifts, those gifts that we have are good. But those gifts are not an end in of themselves. With every good gift, all that God has given, we who believe and know the truth, we should receive every gift, every blessing with thanksgiving thanking our awesome God. And that's what it's all about. That's what it's all for. He's given these things for us to enjoy that we would turn around and give him the praise for those things. That we would recognize his goodness in our lives and give him all the glory and all the praise. Uh, Forbidding marriage and abstaining from food uh, to make ourselves right, that actually conveys a different message. Uh, that, That actually denies God's goodness in the things that he has given us. And so again, the church is to be a pillar and foundation of the truth. We're to be upholding the truth to the world, but, but to deny God's goodness and, and abstaining from the things that he has given, again, that, that gives a different message that does not uphold the truth. But when we receive what God has given with thanksgiving, we give God the thanks and glory that he alone deserves. We are declaring his goodness to the world. When we, like the psalm said, tell of his great deeds, we are declaring his goodness to the world. That he is our awesome God who gives us good things. And that we have an awesome Savior who purchased all those good things for us. And he alone deserves the honor from our lives. He alone deserves the thanksgiving that we would give. Not just once a year, not just before we eat a meal, but in every moment of every day of our lives. That we would live in the attitude of thanksgiving to glorify our great and awesome God. That's great. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. For the complete sermon archive and more information about the church, please go to visit nvbc.com.